Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, if you'll tell the person you're talking to, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, we'll look at verse 26. Susie read this last week. We sang about it this morning, the birth of Christ and its miraculous splendor. At the center of the Christian message stands one grand miracle, and the miracle is of God coming in flesh. And that miracle is followed by a series of miracles. And so if you're a Christian, you understand that we are believers in miracles, it's a miracle followed by a series of miracles ending in, uh, not ending, but continuing in the resurrection of Christ. But after all, um, as we believe in miracles, life is a miracle. And uh, it's important that we understand that even our being here is a miraculous thing. Sometimes I'm surprised by people. How about you? Yeah, <laughs> One of the things that surprises me is that uh, some people find it hard to believe in God, or more specifically, the miracles of Christ, but they believe like you shouldn't step on the cracks on the sidewalks, because you step on a crack, break grandma's back, right? Um, or, you know, stay away from the number 13, or they believe in fortune tellers and all of these things that um, defy good explanation, or aliens and time travel, and uh, they follow other superstitions, things that have spurious, spurious evidence, if any at all. And I'm most surprised that people think that the universe is best explained by mindless, unguided process, that we're just here because somehow a random bunch of atoms collided together and it created what we now live in. They deny a personal God created this, and it's hard to feel uh, that that's not a little bit deliberate, you know, it's like um, a photograph that we've cut somebody out of because we don't like him anymore. Let's get God out of the picture. We don't want to be responsible to him. The world is a miracle if God created it, but it would be really incredible for all of the, the right things to come together if he didn't. That's a weird place to start a Christmas message, isn't it? Talking about evolution. Um, but I think God makes more sense than an impersonal process, though we can explain it. Uh, in some way, scientifically, that doesn't take away the agent that's responsible for creating. It seems to me harder to believe that order came from disorder, that mind came from mindlessness, that personality came from an impersonal force, and that something came from nothing, that there's something that stands behind all of this, someone who stands behind all of this and is the one who is creating it. Even if you could claw your way out of the primordial soup you still stand at the place of a virgin birth. I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but if you climb your way out, you still have to find a mate who's like you to reproduce before you die. And that's a real challenge. Like, how did sex evolve out of uh, mindless, unguided process? And so we're still facing that kind of challenge. The miracle is, isn't really the issue. People, I think, believe in incredible things all the time. When it comes to what God has accomplished, if God made the earth out of nothing, then placing a baby in the womb of a virgin is not hard to believe. And I want to challenge you this morning to think about the miraculous. The miraculous is defined by Noah Webster in 1828 uh, as 
performed supernaturally or by a power beyond the ordinary agency of natural laws affected by the direct agency of almighty power and not by natural causes as the miraculous healing of the sick. This is right in the in Webster's Dictionary. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, when Miriam came along, Miriam pushed some of these things out. But Webster, when he wrote his dictionary, said, as the miraculous healing of the sick or the raising of the dead by Christ. That's what a miracle is like. And so let's uh, take a look here at the miracle incarnation of Christ in chapter 1. And we'll, we'll look at verse uh, 26 through 38, and then we'll follow that with the section of Mary's prayer. It says in verse 26, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, the angel Gabriel, to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And she says, and I want you to know that a lot of people say, well, they didn't know a lot about science back then, and so this whole thing, something may have happened. No, Mary understood where babies came from, and Joseph in the same way understood where babies came from. But she says this, and this is a proof of it. How will this be, Mary asked, uh, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. And so how can this be? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Your translation might have, and nothing for nothing is impossible with God. Okay, So no word of God will ever fail. And she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word be to me. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I want to just talk about five elements of the gospel here that are miraculous that we, we should consider this morning. The first one is that the incarnation is miraculous in its development. I don't know if you thought of this, but, but there's a whole process that led up to this, beginning all the way back with a really old couple who didn't have any children of their own. And it, and it goes back even farther than that to a promise that God made, but generation after generation, God put into place. And as Kiki read the, the scripture this morning, there was a time in history when it looked like the promised line would be cut off. The, uh, in Israel's history, it looked like the kingly line of David would be cut off, but it survived. And out of that, a shoot developed or a shoot grew up, a branch of that family grew up, and it's the branch that Jesus came from. But it's miraculous in its development. God preserved the promise that he made through the people he made. He made a specific promise. He could have just said, this child is going to come to anybody, but then how would we know who it is? We already have enough messianic pretenders as it is, don't we? And so there was a very specific lineage that it was going to come through Abraham, and this child that would be the savior of us all would come through 
the tribe of Judah, and then the promise came to David, and it's going to come through the line of David, and so there's this narrowing, narrowing of address until we find out that it's Jesus. And that also put that situation in kind of a precarious place because the enemy could attack that and try to stamp it out. In fact, he did. I don't know if you remember in the book of Esther that there was a guy that tried to arrange a plot to kill all of the Jewish people, okay? And we, when I was growing up, I just tended to read that as a kind of an interesting story, but I didn't realize the subtext to that. The subtext to that is if he succeeds, that stamps out the messianic lineage and the promise of God. And so the fact that that Esther goes into the king and pleads for mercy preserved. It wasn't just her that mattered. She, she stepped out of her comfort zone. She stepped into mortal danger in order to preserve something that was of eternal value, not only to the people, the Jewish people, but to all people around the globe. So it's miraculous in its development. God made a promise to an old couple that they would have a child. That miraculous child was Isaac. Isaac led to Jacob, who is the father of Israel, Israel, the father of Judah, and then the line goes down until we finally come to, so I'm not going to read you the whole genealogy. I'll let you enjoy that for yourself. You can do it in Matthew chapter 1 and I think Luke chapter 3 where we see the, the um, genealogies there. So it's miraculous in its development. God made a promise way back and he preserved that promise so that it could come to us. We need to understand that the story of salvation is bigger than us. We tend to think of life in terms of of it all coming and being for us. But we need to understand that God has this in mind from the fall that he is going to redeem. And he miraculously provided a Savior for us. The second is it's miraculous in its fulfillment. If you look at uh, verses 34 and 36 here, you see that Jesus is going to be born to a virgin. This is not something that typically happens. And the explanation of this is that God that God uh, came and put the baby in her womb, okay? And born of a virgin, there's a lot of stories in mythology, Greek mythology and probably Roman mythology and on, that uh, talk about gods and humans having um, a relationship and producing some kind of demigod or a child out of that. But in every case... The sexual act was like a human sexual act. But in this case, it's not like that. In fact, um, I think it's Luther that thought the instrument of conception was through the ear, that she heard the word of God and believed. And when she heard the word of God and believed, the child began to grow in her womb. Miraculous in its its, uh, fulfillment that this child would come and be born to a virgin. And then in... Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 35, it's miraculous in its nature that Jesus came, and I should say miraculous in his nature, that as he, he came, he's fully God and fully man. He's God in flesh. You remember the promise in Isaiah chapter 9 is that his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us. He is God in flesh. You can see that through Scripture uh, magnified in several places, but that he was fully God and fully man. And this is more important than we realize, that there's a a miracle that's taken place in that, that God could condescend himself and empty himself of his prerogatives in order to come and dwell in flesh so that we could know him 
in a particular way. He could stand in our place. And it's significant because one of the benefits of knowing Christ is that Christ being fully God, he can represent God to man, can't he? Because he knows the Father like no one else. As the second member of the Trinity, he can make God known. But then the other thing is that he's fully man. And so, you know, you might wonder how that can exactly work. That's a that's a perplexing question. But I do know this, that as him being fully man, he can represent us to the Father. And so he acts as a priesthood. He's the one intermediary between God and man. And it happens within the within the intersection of his own person because he is God and man. And so he can represent both sides as the one mediator and he can make a way for us to know him. Verse 32 and 35 show that he's fully God. Look at look at this when it says the, the Lord will give him the, sorry, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. In verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you so that the Holy One who is born to you will be called the Son of God. Okay, And in John's Gospel, I know we're not in John's Gospel, but in John's Gospel, it calls him the unique, the one-of-a-kind. The Greek word is monogenes. It's the one-of-a-kind Word of God. He's the one-of-a-kind Son of God. So we who come to follow Christ become sons and daughters of God, but it's, it's as we're adopted in, we're brought in through Christ into that son or daughtership, if you will. We're brought in through Christ to that. We are, in, in sense of creation, all his sons and daughters, but not in that special sense of family relationship until we come through Christ. Are you with me? That it, it's through him that we become the sons and daughters of God. And so he's fully God and fully man. And then it's miraculous. The incarnation is miraculous in its conclusion. It concludes, his incarnation concludes with him dying on the cross and on the third day rising to life. And I shouldn't say conclusion is not the right word because it didn't conclude. But when we think about the incarnation, we usually think about it in terms of Christ being in the flesh here on earth, okay? But you need to understand, he's still alive. He still lives. And so we understand him to have been miraculous in his conclusion that he didn't just die, but he raised to life, okay? And then finally, it's miraculous in its effect. And this is what, all of this should get us excited, but but I think when it comes down to the personal stuff. We get excited about things that impact us personally, don't we? Like, you think about things that don't impact us, we don't get super excited about that. And you might wonder how all of this matters. It matters because it leads to this one. It's miraculous in its effects. Because Jesus came, because he uh, dwelt in flesh, he can stand as our high priest. And because he died and rose again, he can save us. Okay, so all of this matters and it's had effects on those who would believe. It affects how we live. If you're believing in Christ, you should live differently, and there's power to do so. And if you're believing in Christ, um, you understand that you've been forgiven. There's power to be forgiven of your sins because you may have offended a lot of other people, but most of all, we've ruined, and we're part of this. Let's take responsibility for it. We have ruined God's creation by rebelling against him and doing things our way. And so we have to come to him in an attitude of repentance and ask for his forgiveness. And he'll give it because of what Christ has done. 
All the sins of the world have been laid upon Christ. And it doesn't matter if we see the justice in this. That doesn't matter. Because God saw the justice in this. And maybe there's a sense in which it's not just. You understand that somebody who's innocent should die for the guilty? But that doesn't matter. God said this will be a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he, he um, placed the sins of the world upon Christ. And then here's something that's really cool that comes as a side effect of being forgiven is that the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. So there's a sense, and a very narrow sense, and a very specific sense, and I want you to hear this the right way, in which the incarnation happens again. God comes into flesh again. Not in the same way as Jesus. You're not Jesus. Okay, I don't want anybody getting the wrong idea here. I'm saying that God comes and he dwells within us, and that's a miracle too. And that can only happen because the vessel, our bodies, our lives, our hearts have been cleaned through forgiveness to sin. And so it's miraculous in its effect, and we can be changed. And one of the things that really testifies to this is that this is not like a little corner sect in which there's a weird group of people somewhere that on the corner of Diamond and Blackberry that believe this and that we're the only ones. You know what I mean? That would be pretty peculiar if you went to a place and you're like, well, that's weird. Those people believe some weird stuff. But then if you started finding that there were other people all around the world that had that same belief and were changed in the same way, maybe we'd start to take it a little more seriously, right? I'd like you to think about that. I mean, we have a, we have a cross-section of cultures within this church right now. We have people from all around the world, from Australia. Somebody here from Australia today. We have people from Asia that are here today that have been touched and changed by Jesus. We have people from uh, South America who've been touched and changed by Jesus all across the states, even the weird ones, you know what I mean, who've been changed by Jesus from Alaska, not just the cities but the interior, and God has touched hearts and lives and changed us, and we've had a common shared experience that Jesus not only is real to history, he's real in our experience as well. He's proven himself real when we put our faith in him. We've been transformed by him. Now, we could have all that. We could have some kind of collective all across the globe. If it's not true to history, it wouldn't matter. Paul said that. If Christ didn't die and raise, then our faith is in vain. It doesn't matter that we believe it with all of our heart. It's just a useful fiction. But if he really did die on the cross and he really was raised and we did put our faith in him, it matters that we do so. And all of this is a miraculous thing that God is touching lives today across the globe. If you could find yourself on one part of the globe and put your finger around to the other side, there's people that are being touched in a particular way right there. We've got people that are here today that uh, grew up in Africa and have experienced the power of God. And so all across this globe, God is touching hearts and lives in powerful ways. I want you to notice that miraculous does not mean impossible, okay? That it happens to be miraculous does not necessarily mean it's impossible because it tells us in Scripture that nothing is impossible with God, okay? If he's the one that created the universe and he's the one that created the first people and he's the one that created our reproductive system, okay, 
how is it impossible for him to put a baby inside of a virgin? Come on, have you thought about that? I mean, he flung the stars into existence. What would be so hard about doing a miracle like this? I'm not trying to bring the miracle down. I'm trying to exalt the power of God. You understand? That's the difference here. And so nothing's impossible with God. Uh, and uh, in Luke one thirty-seven, it says here, no word of God will ever fail. I'm reading from the NIV. The ESV says nothing will be impossible or nothing shall be impossible with God. And this all hinges upon what the nothing or the word. The, the word nothing is a word that some of you know is rhema. And it can mean a matter or it can mean something said. One of those two things. And uh, the word impossible means to be without power, to not have power, the inability to do something. God in all matters has the power and the ability to do whatever his will requires. And so nothing's impossible with him. The miraculous, if, you're, if your universe and your mind is a closed system and there's nothing outside of that system, and then there's only nature, then we're, in a, we're a closed system. And, of course, we would probably find a way to discount everything that's ever happened. But if a God stands outside of nature as something separate from nature and sometimes acts within nature, then nothing is impossible. I'd like you to notice the miraculous does not mean breaking laws. Okay? Uh, sometimes we say, well, God broke this law. He doesn't break the laws because all the laws are are observations of things that normally happen. Okay? When you see a when you see a law that's something that has been tested and it's been proven by observation to happen again and again, okay? But that doesn't count for exceptions. Even one of the laws of motion, you remember, has an exception built into it. An object in motion remains in motion unless acted upon by an outside force, right? An object at rest remains at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. And so, Within that, even, the exception is built in. And so when God comes and he says, okay, all babies are going to be born this particular way, but there's going to be one exception to that. It's going to be my son. He didn't break a law. He brought something new into nature. Okay, so if I saw a basketball laying on the floor and it's just sitting there because an object at rest remains at rest, but if I pick it up and I shoot it and throw it through the hoop and score, then I've changed what's happening within that system. Or if a ball is rolling across the floor and I kick it in a different direction, it goes in that direction. And then an object or an act that God performs within nature, then it takes a new trajectory. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Miracles, and he talks about how um, God is not invading into nature in a way where he's breaking the laws, but it's that he inserts something new in it, and then that starts to follow the natural course of history. And as the one who created, he has the right to do that. And so he's not breaking the law. He's, he's uh, creating a new action within the world that he's created. And then I'd like you to notice that miraculous does not mean without evidence. Sometimes we think of faith in terms of well, I just really have to strain my believer to believe this, you know, whatever that is, my heart, my mind. I've got to strain in order to believe something. I don't think God asks us to believe without evidence. In fact, I think the the Bible is very evidential. You'll see it again and again in Luke chapter 1. 
you'll see uh, this. In fact, we're right there. Why don't we read it? Many have undertaken, this is verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who first eyewitnessed it, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things which have been taught. And if you go to Acts chapter 1, it's a similar opening because it's the same author. And he said, I've set down many convincing proofs. And so he's just demonstrating based on eyewitness accounts that this is true. Okay, because that's evidence is the witness. When it comes to historical facts, we weren't there. How do we know? Only through through eyewitness accounts. And so you understand the value of that. There's a law professor. In fact, there's a, a building at Harvard Law School, uh, the Simon J. Greenleaf building. And uh, he was a believer. He put this to the test in the evidence of the courtroom witnesses, and he put the Gospels on trial. And he determined that he believes that the Gospels are true based on the eyewitness accounts. Simon Greenleaf, if you'd like to look it up. Uh, and he's not the only one. Others have done similar things. So we're talking about evidence here of um, the virgin birth for one and the divinity of Christ for another. We have the gospel witnesses. And do you know that one of the eyewitnesses in Luke's gospel was probably Mary because he hints at it. He says this again and again, Luke does. He collects, he's probably relying a little on Mark, I think. He's probably got some eyewitnesses that he's interviewed that have asked. He knows Paul, and he knows probably knows Peter and John and some others, and he's talked to them. And he hints at the fact that Mary shares because he says, and Mary stored up these things in her heart. She treasured up these things in her heart. Why would he say that? It's a summary statement that says, the thing that I've just told you has somebody at the center of it that knows what happened. And so we we have to take the evidence and determine what we will. And I don't think God's afraid of honest questions. Okay, If you're an honest inquirer, ask the questions. I think you'll find that there's sufficient evidence here to believe. The problem with believing and not believing is usually not an evidential thing. It's what we want. There's there's something at the heart of who we are that helps us decide whether we're going to believe or not believe certain things. And then that's the, the last thing here is that notice the miraculous does not mean unbelievable. It doesn't mean that something is unbelievable, okay? Uh, it may be exceptional, which means it's not every day, but not necessarily unbelievable. How many, one of the things that um, I think David Hume, the philosopher, the Scottish philosopher was saying in his argument against Christianity was that, well, these things don't happen. You can't test them and prove them. Well, of course you can't because they're historical events. And this kind of historical event, the incarnation and the resurrection, are things that would only happen once in history. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't say, well, I've never seen that in my lifetime. Well, of course, you. but if you've been there at the time of Jesus, you might have seen that. You might have been a part of what was going on, but we were not there, and so we have to believe or not believe the evidence that others have shared. So I think it's incredible that, to believe that our universe was formed without intelligence, that it just happened accidentally. I think that's, that's incredible.
Okay, not in a good way. You know, like that's incredible. The television show, that's hard to believe. Okay, but if there's a God, and I think there's good reason to believe that, when I look around and I see the design, and I see personality, and I see love, intelligence, it seems to me that that comes from an origin that is like that, that gives order, that is loving, that is intelligent. And so we should think in terms of that. In fact, the roots of modern science uh, and observation come from a Christian tradition. You can, look, you can look into this. You'll find it's true. It comes from a Christian tradition that believes that because God is the creator of the universe, we should find order here. And if we find order here, we should explore that and see where it goes. And we did, but it seems now that we've forgotten, many people, that the origin goes back to a creator. And the reason for science even goes back to a creator. And listen, this is not a matter of intelligence and stupidity. Like, like the stupid people all come on this side and believe in this fairy tale, and the smart people come over here and believe in this. It's not like that. It's not easily drawn up like that. You'll find that there are intelligent, unintelligent people on both sides. Come on, if we're honest... Okay, and uh, I think, well, what about the brilliant people on the side of Christianity? Well, think about it. I mean, you've got scientists like Galileo and Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton's theology was a little bit messed up, but he's a believer. And Blaise Pascal, and there we can we can name philosophers, we can name scientists. Francis Collins, who helped to uh, uh, decode the language of DNA is a believer, and there's people all along the spectrum. So you can't just come to these narrow categories. You need to ask the questions yourself and ask, is this believable? And I think we've got a good reason to believe that it is. Listen, God came in flesh. That's what Christmas is about, okay? It's a miracle. It's not, we're not asking you to say this is an everyday occurrence. This is a miracle, but it affects our everyday. And I want you to know personally that it changed me. I know I've said this again and again, but I was a different person before coming to Christ. Different in a lot of ways. Different in my desires in life. Different in what I'd be willing to do. This right here would never have happened if it weren't for the power of God coming upon me and compelling me to come and do this. I told somebody the other day that when I get up here, if I start to look out at you and think, oh my goodness, I'm talking to these people, and they're listening or sleeping. But I'm talking to them. I feel like I'm like Peter beginning to sink in the waters because I get my eyes off what I'm doing. But so quickly, let's get back to this thought that God's done. If, if anything good has come from my life, it's because God's been in it. And I can tell you he's brought hope that when my parents passed, I'm telling you, I didn't know how I'd face that. And uh, there was a strength there that I never would have imagined because I had deep confidence in God's ability to save us and to preserve us beyond the grave. So we don't want to, as we come to the miracle of the incarnation, we don't just want to marvel at a miracle. We want to participate in its power. And I think that's what God would call us to. If God's in it, we can expect the power of God to work for us too if we believe. Okay.
um, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We've, we're talking about the incarnation this morning. It's miraculous. But, but all that Christ is, is miraculous. His, his birth, his life, his death and burial and resurrection, all of that, his, his uh, effect upon us, it's miraculous. And Paul says in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And so uh, we have a miraculous gospel. If you're a believer today, let's rejoice in that. Let's participate in that. And if, we're, if you're not, if you're not trusting the Lord yet today, why don't you call upon him? If you've got honest questions, search them out. It'll change your life. It'll bring you into a group of people. We're not a group of people that are on the corner of Diamond and Blackberry only. We're all across this globe. People who have deep faith, who are laying down their lives for their beliefs because it's changed them. This is the miracle of the gospel. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention this morning. Here's how I'd like to conclude. Why don't we bow our heads, take a moment here. We're going to sing in just a moment, and then we'll be dismissed. Just It's going to happen really quick. But I'd like to ask you, if you've never committed your life to Christ, would you call upon the Lord today? If the Lord's dealing with your heart, maybe as we've been talking, you're realizing, okay, there's a whole life out there that I don't really know that much about. Would you today just say, Lord, this is true. If what this, what's being said here is true, then I want to know more. Seek him about it and, and be honest. And I think if you, if you are, I think you'll, you'll see that there's something here, the power of God that's worth believing in that will draw you into a different relationship with the creator of the universe, the God who loves you who's loved us despite the fact that we've ignored him and gone on with life without him, even though he's our creator. The God who has given all that we might be restored to him because he can't just overlook sin. In his, his love and his justice, he must answer sin. And so he made a way to let the consequence of sin, let the punishment, I should say, of sin fall upon me. He sent Jesus. Would you say to him today, be merciful to me, a sinner. Stand in need of your grace. Show me more of who you are, Lord. I believe he'll answer. If you're a, if you're a believer today, would you, would you say to the Lord, thank you. Thank you for doing the miraculous. Thank you for helping me to see it for what it is. Thank you for changing my mind. Thank you for changing my life. And would you live in light of the miraculous incarnation every day? This isn't a Christmas thing for Christians. This is every day. And so I just want to invite you to, to let God deepen that in you. And maybe you're facing an impossibility right now, whether you're trusting the Lord yet or not. You might be facing impossibility. God's the God who can accomplish. Nothing's impossible with him, I should say. Nothing's impossible with him. Would you call upon him in this moment and receive the help that you need? Amen. If you prayed a prayer today, I'd like to I'd love to talk with you and
and uh, help in any way I can. We want to see the miracle-working God come into our lives and touch and change us. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.